Hey, my name is Neil Rapley. I'm a researcher at Book of Mormon Central. I had a chance to sit down and answer some questions from our Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. We wanted to share these answers here as well and invite you to join us on Facebook to learn about more great resources to help with your Come Follow Me study this year. Again, that's the Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. Now, I hope you enjoy. All right, how are you guys all doing uh, this week? I just want to first off start by apologizing uh, that we did not get a video out last week. As we've said kind of every week, we can't guarantee we're going to do this uh, every week because we are busy and we've got a lot to do. And these last couple weeks have been hectic. I also apologize that uh, that we didn't get the call for questions out until uh, until yesterday. And so there wasn't a lot of time to ask questions about this week's curriculum. Uh, but what I'm going to be doing here today is I'm going to actually take some of the questions from last week and the questions from this week, and we're going to bring them together into one video. Uh, some of the questions from last week are still relevant for this week uh, with Lehi's vision uh, and also Nephi's vision having a lot of uh, connections and relationships here. So uh, I think this will still be really useful to you guys uh, in your, you know, make you sound really smart in Sunday school and, and at church. Uh, but uh, yeah, we hope this is still useful. Uh, as usual, I do want to just make it clear. These are not the official views of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, nor are they the official views of Book of Mormon Central, nor are they the official views of our Facebook group. They're really just they're not even really my official views because while I've done a little digging and I've got some notes here, uh, I might've had a different opinion if I had spent weeks or a long time doing a lot of really heavy research on this stuff. But these are just going to be some of my thoughts, which I hope are useful to you and, uh, give you some ideas on where to go to learn a little bit more about some of these different topics. Uh, so with that having been said, I am going to go ahead and uh, get started with some of your guys' questions. Uh, so first question, actually, we're going to do two questions together because they're uh, really closely related. But uh, the first one is Stacy Hotch Settler, uh, and she said, I'd like to know more about the river. It's filthy and people drown in it. What can we learn about the river? And then Cordell Smith asked a similar question. I'm trying to figure out what the fountain is that Lehi refers to that drowns people trying to make their way to the great and spacious building. Also, do we have any clue where the Valley of Lemuel is located? Be kind of cool to have a travel tour seeing sites uh, of, on Lehi's exodus out of Jerusalem to the land bountiful. Uh, that would be a really cool uh, tour. It doesn't exist uh, in part because of uh, the rocky political situation that's going on uh, in the Middle East and throughout the Arabian Peninsula uh, right now. Maybe someday that'd be great. But in response to both of these questions, uh, first, the location of the Valley of Lemuel. We do have a very, very good candidate. Most scholars believe it is Wadi Tayyib al-Ism. You can learn about that by going to Know Why number 286 at the Book of Mormon Central website. Um, also, Warren Aston has a recent BYU studies paper on this called Into Arabia, Lehi and Sariah's Escape from Jerusalem. You can find that. It's a, it's in, you can find that at the BYU Studies website, obviously, but it's also available at the Book of Mormon Central uh, in our archive. So uh, you can learn more about that and why most scholars believe that is the location of 
the Valley of Lemuel. Now, what's really cool about this is I can actually tie this into the question about the river uh, that both uh, Cordell and Stacy asked here. Um, because uh, the most likely explanation for this river that Lehi sees, or fountain, or whatever uh, we want to call it, where it's filthy and people drowned, is that this is uh, one of the wadis, like the one, uh, like the Valley of Lemuel itself, after uh, a big, after the, the monsoon season, when it's been raining and flooding a lot, and you get these flooding rivers running through these wadis that are full of filthy, uh, dirty water, um, and they're, 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 uh, you know, they're flooding over, they're torrents, they're, they're, they're quite dangerous to get caught into, you can get swept away, um, and, uh, this is actually really consistent with not only what Lehi says, but how Nephi describes this, because Nephi is the one who notices it's, that it's filthy, right? And, uh, and he refers to it as a gulf, and, uh, normally we don't think of rivers as gulfs, but these wadis where, where the filthy, the, the rivers of filthy water run through during these rainstorms and after the rainstorms, uh, they are these really deep cut chasms and ravines, uh, through the mountains of Arabia, um, and uh, like I said, this is where, uh, you know, Lehi is camping in one of these, Wadi Tayyib Al-Issam. And we actually just recently published a blog post at Book of Mormon Central by Warren Astin, uh, highlighting a short 30-second video clip someone took uh, right there in Wadi Tayyib Al-Issam, where Lehi is most likely camping shortly after a rainstorm. And you can see the flooding, gushing, dirty water that is running through uh, this, uh, this very spot where Lehi was probably camping. Um, and, uh, that gives you a really kind of an idea, uh, of the visual and the imagery of this filthy water, uh, this, this river of filthy water running through a deep and terrible gulf, uh, that Lehi sees in his dream. Uh, and so you can check that out. Uh, the name of the blog post is what did the river of filthy water and the river of Laman look like? And again, that's at book of Mormon central. Um, and we also have a no why on this question as well. Uh, it's no why number 14 called what was the great and terrible gulf in Lehi's dream. Uh, and so you can look both of those up on Book of Mormon Central if you want to learn more. Um, the next question is uh, from Christian Eugene Salazar. And uh, they ask, where, uh, why is there the odd reference to gathering seeds of every kind before Lehi talks about his vision? So this is a good question, um, and I'm actually glad that you noticed uh, that this reference is kind of out of place. It feels out of place, at least. I don't think it really is, but it feels out of place. I have actually gone through the text of 1 Nephi before, stripped away the chapter breaks, stripped away the verses, stripped away the punctuation and everything, and tried to read it through and figure out how I would break things down. And uh, this is one of the hardest verses to decide where to place it. The reason is because verse 22 of chapter 7 is very clearly the conclusion of the Ishmael story. Uh, but verse 2 of chapter 8 is very clearly the beginning of the story of Lehi's dream. And this verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, doesn't really seem to fit in either story. It's just kind of hanging out there all by itself, and it's a little awkward, and you don't know what to do with it uh, if you're trying to reformat the text and things like that. Um, but I think it's actually quite crucial here. 
Um, one thing that some people have suggested is that it's uh, it's marking the passage of time. Uh, this is an ag- these are people who are part of an agricultural society. Uh, the harvest season and when you when you gather and collect seeds and things like that, that's generally how you know another year has passed. So Nephi may have been indicating that they've been in the Valley of Lemuel a while. A season has passed, a year has passed, and they've had to harvest. They've gathered seeds, right? But his play, his choice to place it here is pretty significant. Uh, ever since Lehi read the brass plates, and this goes back to the end of chapter 5, he has been really preoccupied with his seed, his posterity. Um, he makes a prophecy about his seed there at the end of chapter 5, and then Nephi interjects with some commentary about his plates, but then he picks the story up right where he left off at the end of chapter 5, at the beginning of chapter 7, where he talks about how this prophesying of his seed uh, is the catalyst for Lehi to get the revelation, to send his sons back to get, his fam- uh, to get the family of Ishmael. Um, and basically what seems to have happened is he starts thinking about how, he, you know, he's the future of his seed. And then he realizes his sons need wives in order for them to have seed. Uh, and so then the Lord instructs him, go back, get the family of Ishmael. Um, and that's specifically said so that they can raise up seed in the promised land. So this narrative about Ishmael's family is ultimately about uh, kind of procuring seed for Lehi's family. Um, that is posterity. And then we get this notice about them gathering seeds of every kind, uh, including fruit seeds. And then the next thing we get is this dream about a fruit tree. Uh, and um, some scholars who've talked about this, Richard Dilworth Rust, uh, in a paper in BYU Studies that's also available at the Book of Mormon Central Archive called Taste and Feast, Images of Eating and Drinking in the Book of Mormon. He talks about this prefaced comment about gathering seeds right before the dream and how seeds are typically at the core of the fruit. And so to get to them, you usually have to eat the fruit. And so um, this seed gathering process likely involved eating and tasting and devouring fruit Um, And it may have been part of what's on his mind that leads to this dream where Lehi sees a tree with fruit and eats the fruit and it's the most sweet above all that he's ever tasted and so on and so forth. And then Susan Easton Black in a paper called Behold, I Have Dreamed a Dream, also available on the Book of Mormon Central Archive for free. Um, She comments on how... uh, uh, she comments on this connection that uh, that I was just talking about with the story right before being about Lehi's seed and his posterity and getting wives so that they can have seed, but how this segues into Lehi's dream. And in this dream where he sees this fruit tree and they're partaking of fruit and this ties into the, the fruit seeds that they've been gathering, right? Um, what Lehi takes away from this dream is specifically his concern for his family, concern for his seed. And he tells us in verse 3, he says, because of this dream I had, I have reason to rejoice in Nephi and Sam and many of their seed. But he also says he has reason to fear for Laman and Lemuel and their seed. And so 
all of this from, uh, from the end of chapter five through chapter seven and then into chapter eight and even into Nephi's vision. Because while we think of Nephi's vision as this really sweeping vision of world history and world events, a lot of it is centered on the fate of his seed and the seed of his brethren. Uh, we get in chapter 12, it's all about the fate of his seed and their eventual destruction at the hands of the seed of his brethren. Chapter 13, which we think of as prophecies about the last days, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and all of that and and whatnot, and the establishment of, uh, of the Gentiles in the land. For Nephi, this is largely about the fate of his brother's seed. The Gentiles come and they scatter them and scourge them. But the restoration of the gospel happens, and through that, his, his seed and, and his brethren's seed are restored to a knowledge of who they are as children of Israel. And so a lot of this, uh, really this whole section from, from chapter 5 on through into Nephi's vision is centered around the seed of Lehi's family. And uh, this reference to the gathering of literal fruit seeds is kind of a, a hinge point that transitions from what they're doing in in. Uh, in 1 Nephi 7, with the uh, gaining of wives for the seed of their posterity, to this allegory, if you will, of a tree, a fruit tree, in which uh, they learn more and more about the fate of their posterity, their seed. Um, and so there's there's a lot of uh, really interesting connections there uh, that, that are fun to explore. And just so you know, the connection to seed as in posterity and seed as in fruit seed or whatever, is not just an Englishism. It is also um, in Hebrew, the, the Hebrew word for seed is zara, and it's also used in both ways. Um, all right, Michael Christensen asked, uh, building off an, oh, uh, yeah, he asked about uh, how religious were Laman and Lemuel, and do we have evidence that they were committed Jews or contrawise, were they completely disinterested in spiritual matters? Uh, this is something I believe I actually talked about in the previous video, and we've talked about in the Facebook group as he alludes to there. Um, but uh, yes, we do have reason to think they're actually faithful Jews, but they're ideologically different from Lehi and his family. Um, and you can actually, I wrote a paper about this uh, that uh, I obviously quite like, but other people have told me they like it a lot as well. Um, it can be found at the Interpreter Foundation website. It's also available in the Book of Mormon Central Archive. Um, it's uh, it's a it's called the Deuteronomistic Reforms, and uh, the oh, I'm blanking on the title, and I forgot to write it down here. But uh, it's about the Deuteronomistic Reforms and the family dynamics in uh, in Lehi's family, basically. I think that Laman and Lemuel bought into the reformers' uh, form of Israelite religion, whereas Lehi and Nephi are kind of more old-school religion. But, uh, but they were, in fact, by, by the definitions in which they accepted and believed, Laman and Lemuel were, you know, they considered themselves devout Jews. And in fact, a lot of the times when Nephi says they're trying to kill him and his father, it's probably because they believed that Lehi and Nephi were prophesying falsely. And so, and, and the, that's a capital offense in Israel. If you prophesy falsely, you, uh, you deserve to die, according to Mosaic law. Um, 
All right. Uh, next, uh, we have a series of questions that uh, came from Matthew Watkins. Uh, first question he asks is, are there any Old Testament era tie-ins to Lehi's vision that are not as familiar to us today uh, that may uh, give added meaning that would have been evident at the time? And the answer is yes. Tons of them. Lots of them. Way more than I could possibly go through right now. Uh, I did have a blog post on this uh, that I shared in the group last week that uh, went through five examples. Excuse me. Um, there's way, way more than that. If you go to uh, several of our know-wise, talk about some some examples, and uh, probably the fastest way to find all of them would be to go to the Book of Mormon Central website and uh, look up under the Teach tab, go to Come Follow Me, and then go through the lesson guides on both First Nephi and... Uh, 8 through 10 and 1st Nephi 11 through 15 because some are, you know, some they're going to be under both of those. Uh, those lessons are also going to have several academic papers that you can look up that that are linked to uh, linked directly there. And um, and they'll go into more depth on a lot of those kinds of things. One example, though, one of my favorite examples is um, with the tree of life and its symbolism, which was actually associated throughout much of the ancient Near East with a uh, goddess figure, um, and uh, and she represented uh, the mother of the gods or the mother of the sons of God. Uh, in Israel, this is a figure named Asherah. While Canaanites often, this was more of a, a sexual uh, symbol, this was more of a motherly, nursing motherly figure in Israel. Uh, very similar to our mother in heaven in Latter-day Saint uh, theology. And uh, this symbolism actually works really well with what we actually find in 1 Nephi 11, where Nephi sees not the mother of the Messiah or son of God, uh, not the heavenly mother, but the earthly mother. And uh, the angels kind of transitioning this symbolism from this heavenly figure to the Virgin Mary. And it's actually very interesting. And a lot of insights can be gained uh, from understanding that. That's just one example. There's a lot that could be talked about, though. Um, I wish I could go over more, uh, but that would probably take all of our time. Uh, second question from Matthew, though, um, and also his fourth question. I'm going to pair these two together because I think they're kind of related. Uh, but he said, why did Lehi wander in lo uh, lost in darkness for a long time before praying and receiving his vision when Nephi had no such experience when he had the same vision later. Does this time of darkness represent time without the gospel? Um, and then his fourth question that I think is related in some ways, Nephi says he got to receive the book of Revelation vision. Does that mean Lehi did too? Or did Nephi see more content uh, and not just more detail than Lehi did? Um, and the reason I see these as related is because they're both asking about differences between Lehi's experience and Nephi's experience. And I do think it's important to recognize and, and kind of highlight that I don't think they're the same experience. Nephi didn't just have the same vision that Lehi did. Um, they're separate kinds of experiences. And um, Lehi, when he had his dream, he sees things unfolding before his eyes and he's a participant in what's going on. He sees the tree and he partakes of the fruit. He beckons to others to come to the tree and he's kind of participating in everything that unfolds. Nephi does not have that kind of experience. Nephi goes to ask not only 
not only does he want to see the things his father saw, but he wants to understand the meaning. And so instead of being a participant in what's going on, Nephi has this vision where he is kind of a bystander who's on looking and watching it unfold and uh, has an has a guide explaining what it all means and then transporting him to different times and places and visions uh, that help explain the meaning of all of this. And so they're not really the same experience. uh, And so there are differences and those differences, um, you know, getting back to these specific differences with like the book of Revelation vision, Nephi's experience is different. And I don't think Lehi's you know, had an apocalyptic vision um, like that of the book of Revelation or, or, or anything, he doesn't seem to have had that in connection with his dream. Now, what is interesting is Nephi's vision isn't just about Lehi's dream. It ties in stuff from Lehi's teachings in 1 Nephi 10 um, and even ties back to things he's talking about in 1 Nephi 1 and the vision he has there. And so when Nephi says he wants to see the things his father saw and understand their meaning, I think he is referring to more than just Lehi's dream, even though that tends to be our focus when we compare the two. Um, but uh, with regard to Lehi wandering in the darkness, we actually have a recent Noah that talks about this. It's Noah number 544 titled, Why Did Lehi and Jeremiah Find Themselves in a Dark and Dreary Wilderness? Uh, And I would just encourage you to go check that out and read that if you want to explore that topic a little more. Um, All right, and then uh, the last question, and it was his number three, but the last question from Matthew Watkins, Lehi doesn't mention the rod or the mist of darkness, uh, until after he's partaken of the fruit, does that mean that his journey in life is somehow different than the rest of us? Is that because he is a prophet or just that his mind was caught up in other things or Nephi was just condensing things to avoid repeating himself later when he recounts his own experience with that vision? Um, I don't know. I don't uh, personally read a lot into that. And the reason is because when I have dreams, kind of weird things happen sometimes and things appear out of nowhere and uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And that's kind of how I've always just kind of interpreted the account in First Nephi 8 is Lehi is in a dark and dreary waste and then he wanders for a while and then there's a tree and he goes to the tree and he takes it. And then other things are unfolding before his eyes. Suddenly there's a rod of iron. Suddenly there's a mist of darkness. This is kind of how dreams work and that's just kind of how I interpreted it. I've never put a lot of meaning into why his experience was different than others and what have you. Uh, that doesn't mean we can't uh, we can't find some meaning in it, but it's not something that I've, I've ever given much thought to. Um, Janine Glenn asks, were dreams considered a reliable form of prophecy at this point in time? Uh, yes. Uh, Throughout the biblical world, uh, we have examples in the Bible itself with uh, Joseph of Egypt, for instance, having dreams that uh, prophetically predict his role in leading the family and saving the family and and things like that. Um, But throughout the ancient Near East and the biblical world, we've got a lot of evidence that dreams were understood as a means of uh, revelation or omens or fortune telling and, and prophecy and things like that. Um, And actually, there's a really, really good paper by Dana M. Pike. He's in the BYU Ancient Scripture Department. Uh, His paper is called Lehi Dreamed a Dream, 
the report of Lehi's dream in its biblical context. You can find that on the Religious Studies Center website at BYU. That's rsc.byu.edu. Um, and in his paper, he talks about the broader context of not just biblical stories about dreams, but uh, goes through all kinds of ancient Near Eastern evidence and and the background context of that and how they understood dreams, you know, and, and it's kind of fun. They have, they've found like dream books in, in various ancient Near Eastern cultures, Egyptian and Mesopotamian and what have you, where basically they tell you this, if you dream about such and such a thing, that means this. And if you dream about such and such a thing, that means this. And they had these means of trying to interpret what's going on in them and, and uh, what it prophetically predicted and meant to dream about certain things. So yeah, it was considered, at least by some, a reliable means of prophecy. And, uh, and uh, there's a really fascinating background. Dr. Pike goes through all of that and then actually shows how the Book of Mormon reflects that background in really cool interesting ways. Um, a question from Scott, uh, Haymond might be too late now. You weren't too late, Scott. We got your question. Uh, but I read in first Nephi 14 this morning, uh, that the Gentiles who accept Christ will be numbered among the house of Israel. I knew that, but how radical was this concept in Nephi's time? Were Gentiles already joining the house of Israel or was this a completely abhorrent to the Jews? That's a great question. Um, there's a couple of things that I think are, uh, important to relate. I, I, I haven't found a lot of literature or, or resources that address this question specifically, uh, or are designed to address this question specifically, but here's a few things I can just point out really quickly is first, by the time of Christ, Jews of that time are absolutely accepting converts formally people converting and joining and becoming Jewish, uh, even though they did not grow up Jewish and were not part of the house of Israel originally. I don't know how far that specific practice goes, uh, but they have that practice by the time of Christ. It probably goes back at least a century or two um, uh, during that, uh, what's kind of known as the intertestamental period, uh, because it's just, it's there when Christ is on the scene and it's a very well-established practice at that point. Uh, on a practical level, though, assimilation of non-Israelites into the body of Israel must have been going on pretty much from the very beginning. Um, there were probably some non-Israelite Semites, meaning people with a Semitic uh, ancestry and background, but not part of the family of Israel. There were probably some non-Israelite Semites who are among the slaves who escaped from Egypt. We know the Egyptians had a lot of Semitic slaves, and probably not all of them are directly descended from Israel. Um, they probably would have become a part of Israel um, as they escaped from Egypt with the Israelites, and uh, by virtue of being there and part of the group when the Sinai Covenant is made in the wilderness. And so they were kind of adopted into Israel right then, I would imagine. So when the Israelites settled in the land of promise, uh, in both, both in stories that we find in the book of Joshua, as well as in the book of Judges, we kind of get an indication that there were some Canaanites who were not destroyed. And in fact, archeologically, we have evidence that there were surviving continuous cultures and cities and things that were not destroyed. 
um, in which uh, some of those people assimilated and became part of Israel through intermarriage and things like that. Um, and so from a practical standpoint, this kind of thing is happening pretty much from the beginning. Uh, the story of Ruth is actually an example where we have someone, a Moabite, who is non-Israelite, um, and she effectively becomes Israelite uh, by choosing to follow Jehovah and uh, and by choosing to live the law of Moses, and she becomes a beneficiary of the law of Moses even, right? And so we do see that this is an Old Testament practice of people outside of Israel being able to become uh, assimilated into Israel uh, by choosing to live and adopt Israel's religion. Um, we also have some interesting archaeology that comes right from Nephi's time that uh, is indicative of this kind of practice. Around 720 BC, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They deported most of the uh, Israelite population that lived in northern Israel. Um, some fled down southward into the land of Judah and around Jerusalem, and I've talked about that uh, in another video because that has some important Book of Mormon relevance as well, uh, but we won't get into that right now. They deported most of the Israelite population, and they replaced them with populations from other parts of uh, the Assyrian kingdom. And of course, these foreign populations bring in foreign religious practices and, and beliefs and things like that. Uh, well, according to Mordecai Coggin uh, in his uh, essay in the Oxford History of the Biblical World, this is what he said. I'm sorry, I'm quoting from a source. I don't do that very often in these videos, but this is just, this is so uh, relevant to what you're talking about. I thought I would share it here. Um, and here's what, uh, again, this is Mordecai Coggin. Uh, he's, a, he's a Jewish scholar. He said, toward the end of the 7th century BCE, that's Nephi's time right there, all traces of the non-Israelite forms of worship imported by the foreign settlers seem to have disappeared from Samaria. Assimilating Israelite customs, the foreigners became virtually indistinguishable from the original Israelite population. And by the mid-6th century, the residents of Samaria had developed into a community of faithful who worshipped the God of Israel and who pressed, and who pressed to participate in in the rebuilding of the temple alongside Judeans who had returned from Babylon. These Sumerians must have been scrupulous enough in their religious practice for some of them married into the high priesthood in Jerusalem. Uh, so this is right from Nephi's time period and, and uh, a little bit after. Uh, but basically what he's saying is these foreigners who were imported they adopted Israelite customs, they adopted Israelite religion, and they became indistinguishable from non-Israelites, ultimately. Um, and so that kind of thing is happening in Nephi's world. Um, and then just one last note on this from a practical standpoint with Nephi himself. When they got to the New World, wherever they settled in the New World, this isn't a matter of depending on which geography you choose, there were already people living here in the New World. Um, and I imagine we'll get to this uh, in, uh, in the next lesson as well. There might be some questions related to this kind of thing, but there would have already been people and these people would have assimilated, uh, well, actually Nephi's family would be the people who assimilated to some extent, but they maintained their religion. The Lamanites didn't and maybe they assimilated to some native practices and religions. Um, but Nephi and his people maintained their religion, which means anyone who became and united with Nephi's family and became part of Nephi's people would be a Gentile in their view, 
becoming a part of the house of Israel. And so this is probably happening right among Nephi's own community. And while his vision is about the last days, no doubt him pointing out that he had this vision and explaining what he does here where those who accepted Christ are being, uh, Gentiles who accept the gospel of Jesus Christ are becoming part of the house of Israel is in part reassuring his own people that because they have converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are truly part of the house of Israel and thus partakers in all the promises and covenants that God has given to Israel at that time. So, uh, again, it probably was not an especially radical idea. There was precedent for it. Uh, I don't know exactly what the nature looked like. Uh, like I said, I couldn't tell you how they understood conversion from outside of the Israelite community into it like we know and understand for the time of Christ, but there absolutely was some assimilation happening of non-Israelites into uh, the body or house of Israel, if you will. Um, next question comes from Hayden Carroll. Why does the angel who teaches Nephi in 1 Nephi 14 describe the great and abominable church as a whore? And the description is specifically the whore of all the earth. Um, a couple of thoughts. One, it contrasts with the virgin seen in the beginning of the vision. And so you have this positive symbol uh, uh, from uh, from the Virgin Mary, right? And the contrast to this uh, virgin who is the mother of, of the Messiah is this whore of all the earth. Um, the other thought is that it parallels with the mother of all harlots in the book of Revelation. Um, and so if you haven't done it before, go and study all the passages about the mother of all harlots in Revelation, and then study all the passages about the great and abominable church and the whore of all the earth in First Nephi's vision. I think you'll learn some things. Um, but uh, I guess maybe the most direct and simple answer, though, is that uh, to whore oneself uh, out and, and things like that, uh, we usually think of it as something sexual, but it's not exclusively something sexual. Uh it generally means to debase yourself, right, um, for unworthy motives, usually for monetary gain and things like that. And that's exactly what we see the great and abominable church doing. Uh, it's taking the plain and precious truths of the gospel. It's taking uh, the, 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 the gospel itself and it's debasing it by excising and losing and eliminating some of the plain and precious truths that were there at the beginning uh, and it's doing all of this, it's debasing this, uh, this sacred, pure gospel for the glory of the world and for uh, monetary gain and all of this kind of stuff. And so, um, and so that's exactly what's happening is it's basically whoring itself in various ways. And so that's, uh, you know, whore of all the earth is really quite an appropriate label for it. Um, and then this last question is uh, from Jasmine. Uh, she, she asks, why do you think Nephi was shown both the vision of the tree of life and a vision of world history? Um, and I think this ties back to what I was talking about a little bit earlier. Uh, I think it's useful to uh, keep in mind these are different experiences. Nephi isn't just having the same experience Lehi did. He's not dreaming the same dream or anything like that. Um, but that Nephi's vision is tying into other revelations that Lehi has had. Um, the revelations he has to start the Book of Mormon off in 1 Nephi 1, and the things he teaches that he must have learned by revelation and prophecy 
in First uh, Nephi 10. Um, and actually, even which I mentioned earlier, the prophecies about his seed that he makes in the end of First Nephi 5, but we don't get the details of there, are also probably tied into some of what Nephi's seeing here. Um, he sees this, you know, he talks about, uh, he prophesies about the Messiah and his life in, in pretty uh, significant detail in First Nephi 10. Uh, there in First Nephi 10, he also talks about the scattering of Israel and the Gentiles receiving the fullness of the gospel and the gathering of Israel. And, and like I said, at the end of First Nephi 5, Lehi makes prophecies about his seed and the fate of his seed. And that's also tied into everything with the vision as, uh, or with the, with the dream of the tree of life as well. Um, and so it's not, it's not just Lehi's dream that Nephi's seeing. When he says he wanted to see the things his father saw, I think he's talking about all the prophetic knowledge and visions and things that Lehi had had up to that point. And he gets this grand sweeping vision that brings it all together in, uh, in unique and, and really fascinating ways. But Lehi had seen a lot of this stuff himself. Um, just in, in separate ways. And Nephi doesn't give us a lot of details about uh, the circumstances in which Lehi saw these revelations. Um, I think Nephi, you know, he tells us specifically he's not going to give us all the details of the record of his father and things like that. And I think he really wanted to highlight and focus on his own direct experiences rather than those of his father, Lehi. And so rather than go in great detail on the uh, visions and, and things that his father had, uh, and then repeat a lot of that same stuff when he's talking about his own vision, he has given us only scant details of what his father actually knew and saw. But then, like I said, he has his own grand vision that brings a lot of it together. And that is where he gives us the most detail because that's what he knew firsthand. Um, Anyway, uh, that is all of our questions uh, for today. I know there were several more. I didn't have time to answer them. Again, I apologize that uh, we did not get uh, the call for questions out sooner, and I apologize that uh, we missed last week. Uh, but let us know what you think in the comments here, and uh, if you'd like us to keep doing these, as long as we have time, we will try to uh, make it happen next week, and uh, we hope you enjoyed it.